and welcome to Centurion. Today we're going to journey back in time to the splendor of the ancient Roman Empire. Justice Antonio, the son of a Roman senator, has won the favor of Caesar by defeating the most honored gladiators in all of Rome. Being a man of unusual character and discipline, Justice rejects the life of luxury that's often chosen by most senators' sons. Rather, he chooses the life of a soldier. Along with his young wife and son, he is stationed far to the east of Rome as a centurion. Justice and his family soon discover that life is not always pleasant for a Roman soldier living among a conquered people. Justice, I don't think I can endure this wretched place. We were not in Jerusalem one hour before a group of Jewish boys started throwing rocks at Julius. I fear for his safety. What do you think, Julius? Don't worry about me, Father. Those rocks didn't hurt me half as much as they hurt Mother. Besides, I'm old enough to protect myself. You'll make a good soldier, son. If he lives that long, why can't Julius stay at home and be a peaceful youth? Because, Helena, men are not made in the kitchen clinging to their mother's skirts. A boy needs a good fight now and then. Especially if he's going to be a centurion like you, Father. That's right, son. Now don't worry, Helena. Julius will be all right. We'll all have to do some adjusting to life here in Jerusalem. By the way, after you've rested for a few days from our long journey, we're going to take our first vacation. Already? Where are we going? Have I ever told you about a wealthy man named Marcellus who used to work with my father in Rome? I think so. Isn't he the one who taught you how to use a sword? Yes, in fact, he gave me my first sword. Marcellus is now looking after the affairs of Rome in a small town located in Galilee. Are we going to visit Marcellus, Father? Yes, son. Pilate is send me to, sending me to Galilee to gather information about a certain Jew who is organizing a rebellion against the Roman authority. Do you think Marcellus will be brave enough to play gladiators with me? If I remember correctly, Marcellus has a son about your age. No doubt he'll be happy to match swords with you. Sir, there is a man at the gate who wishes to speak with you. What does he want? He said he uh, has some business to discuss with the new commanding centurion. Very well. Send him in. Thank you for seeing me, centurion. You're most welcome, sir. What business brings you here? In the past, I've supplied all the Roman soldiers in Jerusalem with tents. You, then you shall continue to do so if you do good work. My family makes the finest tents in the empire. If so, you have nothing to fear. You shall have my business also. Good day, sir. There is one more matter I wish to discuss with you. Yes? This morning, I discovered that one of my men cheated the Roman government by charging too much for some tents. The man has been punished, and I wish to restore four times the amount that the government was overcharged. Are you aware that I could have you beaten and imprisoned for defrauding the Roman Empire? I am. Then why do you risk so much to restore so little? Centurion, a healthy conscience is worth far more to me than a healthy body. I shall not forget this. You are a man to be trusted. Are you a Jew? Yes, I am. I'm a Pharisee of the tribe of Benjamin, and I'm also a Roman citizen. Are you familiar with a certain Jew from Galilee who is supposed to be able to perform miracles? Uh, the man you speak of is just a peasant from Nazareth. His name's Jesus. He's got some clever tricks that deceive a lot of people, but no educated Jew has been fooled for a moment. The elders of the temple are doing all they can to expose this imposter. Thank you for that information, sir. By the way, may I ask your name? My name is Saul, Saul of Tarsus. Justice that would be remembered for years to come. Several days later, Justice and his family left Jerusalem, bound for the small town of Capernaum, located in Galilee. Helena was relieved to get out of Jerusalem 
and Justice was eager to see his dear friend, Marcellus. The years have been kind to you, Marcellus. You look exactly as you did ten years ago. Thank you, my old friend. This peaceful life by the Sea of Galilee suits me well. You've changed a good bit since I taught you how to use a sword, and your son looks just like his grandfather. No, Julius, at least not yet. By the way, Marcellus, where's your son? Julius has been looking forward to meeting him. Last time I saw Stephanos, he was busy, busy battling one of the meaner-looking statues in the gardens. I'm sure he could use some help. Why don't you go see if you can find him, Julius? May, Father? Yes, son, you may go, but don't kill any statues. Remember, that's the way you ruined your last sword. Yes, Father. <laughs> well, how do you like military life, Justice? Um, is the son of the Senate's president, pre, uh, son of the Senate's president, satisfied as the life of a centurion? I am quite content for the present. Then tell me, centurion, what important military business brings you to Little Capernaum? I've been sent to Galilee by Pilate to gather, gather information about a certain Jewish rebel who claims to be one of the gods. Have you ever heard of a man named Jesus? Let's discuss that another time. My soul is too happy to discuss such weighty matters right now. Stephanos has just recovered from a serious illness, and now my old friend from Rome has come to visit. God has been most good to me. During the coming weeks, Justice traveled throughout Galilee, gathering all the information he could about Jesus. After about a month, Justice returned to Capernaum to be with Helena and to discuss his findings with Marcellus. Julius and Stephanos spent most of their time playing soldiers by the Sea of Galilee. Oh, where are those two great soldiers of ours battling today? They've called off war for one day so that they could go fishing. One of the local fishermen offered to take him out on his boat today, so I got them up before sunrise, packed them both a lunch. We'll see them again when they get hungry. Now tell me, what have you found out about Jesus? Uh, it's been difficult to find Hebrews who are willing to talk. However, I have heard Jesus himself speak on two occasions. And what did you think? Did he impress you as a dangerous rebel who's determined to overthrow Rome? No, I heard not a word about Rome, but rather Jesus spoke of a place in the heavens where he and his father live. Then he described a place that burns with eternal fire called hell. He said that every man would spend eternity in one of these two places. None of it made sense to me. I expected to find a violent man whose words were cruel and bitter. But Jesus is a man of peace and kindness. Did you ever get close enough to speak with Jesus? No, no, the crowds were always too great. But I did watch from a distance as he performed some of his so-called miracles. Has anyone been able to discover the secret of Jesus' tricks? He has no tricks. Surely, Marcellus, you don't believe this man can do the impossible. Justice, ten days before you came to my household, I was sure my son Stephanos was going to die. Every doctor in Galilee had treated him. But all of them told me the same thing, mm. that he'd be dead within a week. I, I was so desperate, and when I heard that Jesus of Canaan was Galilee was here, my, his health was failing fast. When I finally found Jesus and I told him of my son's condition, he calmly told me I could return home, that my son would live. I, too, had thought him to be a trickster, but when I returned home, the servants met me with the news that Stephanos was completely healed. The, his fever left him at the time that I spoke with Jesus. What did the doctor say? They had no explanation. Certainly there must be some explanation for what happened. 
Father, Father, I saw him, and there were 5,000 men all around him. And he talked to me, and I talked to him, and he took my... Wait, Julius, now slow down, son. What's all the excitement about? Late this morning, we saw thousands of people on a hillside, so we went ashore to see what was happening. After we pushed our way through the crowd, we saw a man speaking and healing people. Then this wonderful man asked if he could have my lunch. Well, I didn't know what to do, so I gave it to him. He broke it into pieces and gave it to everybody. Father, my little lunch fed all those people, and there were 12 baskets of food left over. I even brought one basket full to sh home to show you. Look, Father. Marcellus, I have much re to report to Pilate, not of rebellion, but of mystery. After several more weeks of investigation, Justice discovered that Jesus was making his way south to Jerusalem. Justice and his family followed, hoping to learn more. When they finally arrived in Jerusalem, Justice went directly to Pilate, but Pilate did not seem interested in his findings. The narrow streets of Jerusalem were swarming with throngs of visitors. It was the time of the Passover, and everyone was talking about Jesus. Many were saying that he was the Messiah. Then suddenly it seemed as though the whole city turned against Jesus. Caiaphas and the chief priest delivered Jesus to be tried for inciting the people to rebellion. Pilate brought Jesus before the angry throng and tried to reason with them, but the bloodthirsty crowd led by Caiaphas would not listen. Pilate finally gave in to their cries and ordered several soldiers to flog Jesus. He then retreated into the palace. Well, Pilate, are you going to crucify an innocent man? No, centurion. You are. I'll have no part of it. Do my ears deceive me, or do I hear a Roman soldier refusing to obey his superior? What will Caesar say? I will write a report that will say everything. And whom do you suppose Caesar will believe? A report by, signed by Herod and myself, or a report signed by a lowly centurion? Besides, it is expedient that one man should die for the people. Spoken like a true puppet of Caiaphas. Beware, Centurion, it would be better for you to kill an innocent man than to disobey orders. You wanted an opportunity to prove yourself. You have it.
centurion, one of the wealthier Jews, has asked to be given the body of Jesus for burial. Is Jesus dead already? Yes, he died about the ninth hour. Why did he die so soon? I can't explain it. As he hung there on that cross, he seemed to be bearing far greater burdens than the pain of that cross. Then the darkness came, the thick, heavy darkness. So I ordered the torches to be lit. And when I looked up, Jesus was staring at me, and he whispered, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I felt like the most vilest, most wretched creature who had ever lived. Then about the ninth hour, he cried, Father, into thine hands I commend my spirit. And he was dead. It wasn't like I was taking his life. It seemed as if though he was giving it. Suddenly the earth shook and the rocks round my feet split open. Truly, this man was the Son of God. Don't be foolish, Justice. Today has been difficult for all of us. Now, are you certain that Jesus was dead? Well, certainly. I thrust my spear into his side so that there would be no question. Pilate, the Sanhedrin requests that guards be placed at the tomb of Jesus immediately. Are you not content now that he is dead? This deceiver said they would rise again after three days. His fanatical disciples may try to steal the body of Jesus and spread the rumor that he has risen. If this were to happen, the last deception would be worse than the first. Very well, Caiaphas. You shall have your guard. Justice, go with Caiaphas and see if the tomb is made secure. The stone is to be... No! No, please, I killed Jesus. I cannot see his body. Please, no, I killed him. I killed him. Centurion, get control of yourself. Caiaphas, the guard shall be directly responsible to you. Since you have destroyed his life, now you shall protect his body. His blood be on us and on our children. Something Caiaphas, Something Caiaphas had said haunted justice. Jesus had prophesied that he would rise from the dead. Of course it was absurd, but still the thought terrified him to the very depth of his soul. If Jesus were God, and if he did rise from the dead, what would Jesus do to the man who had crucified him? No, no, I see him. He's looking at me. He's looking. I, I can't. I killed you. I, he comes to avenge his blood. No, I can't. I can't do it no more. No. Justice, no. justice, wake up. You have to wake up, justice. Helena, I'm sorry. Justice, we can't go on like this. You haven't slept or eaten for three days. Father, are you all right? Yes, son. There's nothing to fear. The head servant says there is a soldier waiting at the door who wants to speak with you. Tell him I'll see him at, another, at a later hour. He says it's urgent, Father. Titius, what are you doing here? Who's guarding the tomb? No, no one, sir. Where are the other men? They're reporting to Caiaphas, sir. And you should, too. But You're responsible for that, not me. No, I thought you should know what happened. Has something gone wrong? The, the tomb, it, it's empty, sir. What? I, early this morning, when I, I was on duty, the earth began to shake violently. A great light surrounded me. I, I thought it was lightning, but when I looked up, I saw a figure dressed in white. The garment was like snow. I, with ease, he rolled away that great stone, and I fell to the ground trembling. You've gone mad, Titius. No, sir. The, the other soldiers saw the same thing. Then you've all gone mad. I suppose you're also going to tell me that this strange, strange ghost stole the body of Jesus. N no, sir. Now, Titius, tell me truthfully, who took the body? When the stone was rolled away, the, the body was already gone. Mm. Thank you.
to do something. You don't even resemble the brave son of Senator Antonio who entered Jerusalem only a few months ago. It's time to return to Rome before these superstitious Jews convince you that a dead man can actually return from the grave. Father, Father, I saw him. I really saw him. Slow down, Julius. Now calmly tell us what you're so excited about. This afternoon, my friends and I were playing soldiers just outside Jerusalem. When we when I saw two men coming down the road, as they got near us, I noticed a third man had joined them. He was speaking to them. I heard him talking. I saw him, Father. I really saw him. You saw whom, 
Julius. I saw Jesus. <gasps> Julius, don't you ever mention the name of that dead man again. But mother, he's alive. I really saw him. You only thought you saw him. You shall never mention that name again in this household. Do you understand? But mother. Do you understand? Yes, mother. Jesus was alive, and justice could deny the truth no longer. Overpowering fear was the constant companion of justice, and that fear was driving him insane. As a last resort, Helena went to Pilate secretly and convinced him that his governorship would be in danger if justice, the son of a powerful Roman senator, were to stay in Jerusalem any longer. The next day, Justice received orders from Pilate to return to Rome. When Justice boarded the ship bound for home, he found himself wishing that all memory of the past few months could be left behind. Although he realized that Jesus must be God, Justice refused to make Jesus his God.
When Justice finally set foot again in Rome, his spirit revived. He renewed his loyalty to the gods of Rome by offering many sacrifices in the various temples. He busied himself with all kinds of activity in an effort to crowd out all memory of Jesus. Five years after Justice and his family arrived in Rome, Helena died while giving birth to a beautiful baby girl named Alyssa. And little Alyssa became the idol of her father's heart. Many years passed. Justice succeeded his father as president of the Senate and became one of the most wealthy and powerful men in the entire Roman Empire. Julius, following his father's example, became a centurion and was sent far to the east. Alyssa grew to be a lovely young woman with long auburn hair and deep green eyes. She was small in stature and very beautiful in appearance. Justice adored her. Even when Alyssa was almost old enough to marry, Justice cautiously guarded her innocence like a rare jewel. For indeed, purity was rare in Rome. A new emperor took the throne who was well-liked at first, but with time became more and more wicked. In the emperor's own estimation, he himself possessed three divine virtues. He was history's great poet, musician, and lover. He surrounded himself with evil women and weak men who nurtured his base appetites and lavished praise on his meager abilities. Hearken, critics, I shall bless thee with my latest treasure. I spied a gem of beauty rare with cheeks of pearl and auburn hair, with emerald eyes of softest hue which sparkle like the morning dew. So small and delicate was she, I thought this gem a dream to be. Such charm the gods could not resist shall soon be mine if she exists. Well, speak, Senator Antonio. What do you think of my newest creation? Tis most clever, noble emperor. Must honest men always be so dull? What think ye, wise Petronius? This is terrible. What? It's terrible that one man should possess so, so great a portion of the world's artistic abilities. Such beauty makes the gods envious. The verses of mortals croak like a frog, while thy stanzas soar on the wings of grace and splendor. Truly it must be frustrating that there is no one to be compared with thee, no one to challenge thy matchless ability. Yes, tis most difficult. That is why I love thee, Petronius, for only thou canst fully appreciate my great art. Tell me honestly, can you discern any slight improvement which might be made in my composition? Does an eagle ask a sparrow how to fly? Please, Petronius, I starve for want of attention. I, I mean criticism. Oh, speak on, wise one. I question whether there any mortal woman's beauty is worthy of thy divine poetry. Thou dost speak truth, noble sage. Great art requires great subject matter. Oh, incomparable genius! Quickly, historians, write that down. 
It must be preserved for all ages to come. And did you notice how quickly it came to me? Let's see. Where was I? Oh, yes. Um, great subject matter. Therein lies my problem. My creative powers are hindered in this wretched city. These narrow streets and crude buildings and foul odors, they stifle my artistic soul. Oh, that an earthquake would destroy Rome so that I could create a new one in its stead, one that would be a work of great beauty. Why couldn't some angry god burn this city to the ground? But, most divine Nero, why dost thou speak of the gods? Speak on, Petronius. Art thou not a god? And think what great music thou couldst write after being inspired by such a spectacle as the burning of Rome. Such stupid babbling Petronius will bring poetry to life and put people to death. Ah, now the learned senator has decided to speak. Justice, sometimes I wonder whom you love more, the people or the emperor. It would not be in the emperor's best interest to destroy the lives of those who love and serve him. Justice, sometimes I some things are worth more than the lives of thy precious little peasants. Well said, Petronius. If life is not full of beauty, then life is empty. I beg thee, blessed Caesar, do not speak so loudly. If thou shouldst strain thy golden voice, the world would never recover from such a great loss. Justice was used to such absurd talk in the palace. However, Nero's song stuck in his mind. Even with all of his other women, Nero wanted Alyssa. He wanted to defile one of the few pure things left in Rome. However, there was one obstacle in Nero's path of evil, Senator Justice Antonio. Although Nero had been responsible for the slaying of several senators, he was hesitant to order the murder of Justice. Nero didn't fear Justice, but he feared the people. Justice was one of the few honest men left in the Senate, and so he was popular with the citizens of Rome. Several days later, the House of Justice was unexpectedly filled with rejoicing. Julius had returned to Rome. How well you look, my handsome brother. And you are even more beautiful than I remember, dear sister. Certainly all the noble young men of Rome must be battling for your favor. Well, yes, in fact, we are in the midst of a battle right now. Oh? What is the young man's name? I don't think you would know who he is. Try me. He's kind of the man in charge of the whole empire. His name is Nero. What? That scoundrel, so that devil wants to defile my sister. I'll slit his throat before the sun rises tomorrow. Have patience, Julie. I do, Julius, I do not wish to lose both of my children at the same time. But we must do something. That's exactly what Nero wants. If we give him an opportunity to question my loyalty, I shall be killed and Alyssa will be left defenseless. Dear brother, we must do as father says. Let's not antagonize the emperor. We've known of Nero's desires for several months and we have successfully avoided his grasp. Come, my children, this is a day for rejoicing. Let us not dwell on such unhappy thoughts. What has brought you to Rome, Julius? Father, I was given charge of a prisoner in Caesarea who had appealed to Caesar. After a long trip with many hazards, we finally reached Rome late yesterday. Early this morning, I turned him over to the captain of the guard. What is this man's crime? He's a, a Christian. Many months of joy followed. There was only one thing which clouded the happiness of justice. His son had developed a great fondness for the prisoner he had brought to Rome. Julius, you have been visiting this prisoner far too often. Christians are not well thought of here. And Caesar has eyes everywhere. 
Your visits with this man must stop before you give Nero the excuse he needs to destroy us and seize your sister. Is your fear for Alyssa or is it for yourself? Son, those are cruel words. I'm sorry, Father, but you know you've never been the same since Jerusalem. Alyssa has told me that sometimes you still wake up in the night screaming about Jesus. Yes, and I will carry those haunting memories to my grave. But you don't need to fear, Father. Would you speak with Paul? I, I cannot. No one would need to know about it, not even the servants. Paul is being kept in a house next to a large inn called the Fisherman's Rest. There is a large underground room below the inn that also extends under Paul's house. Tomorrow night, I'm going to take charge of Paul and allow him to speak to a gathering of Christians in the large cavern. Why are you telling me this? Because I want you to come to the meeting. But what good will that do? Paul is a remarkable man, Father. I've seen him heal people with all manner of diseases. I've seen him bitten by a snake, yet suffer no harm. But more importantly, Paul has seen Jesus, and he can lead you to him as well. But Julius, I crucified Jesus. What will your friend Paul say about that? You, you don't need to mention that, Father. Tomorrow evening, put on a long hooded cloak and go to the fisherman's rest. After you enter, go to the long counter and ask to speak with the owner. When he appears, you must first draw the sign of a fish, the sign of a fish on a countertop. Then, when the owner speaks the words, he is risen, you must reply, and he liveth forevermore. I'll try to meet you at the counter. You are asking me to risk everything. If it were discovered that I attended such a meeting, we would all be ruined. Is my peace of mind worth such a great price? No, Father, but your eternal soul is. Alyssa! I'm sorry, Father, I couldn't help overhearing. Please, go to this meeting. Julius has told me much about Jesus. I have even thought of becoming a Christian myself, but I could never do anything to hurt you. Please, go, Father. Justice didn't sleep that night. Even after more than 30 years, nearly every time he closed his eyes, he saw the compassionate eyes of Jesus gazing upon him. The next day, Alyssa sent the head servant to find a long, dark hooded cloak for her father to wear. Then, late in the afternoon, at Alyssa's urging, Justice set out on foot for the fisherman's rest. Soon, Justice found himself inside the inn, standing at a long counter. I would like to speak to the owner of the fisherman's rest, please. You are speaking with him, kind sir. I am told there's to be a meeting here tonight. Many merchants meet here around my tables to discuss the business of Rome. Whom are you seeking? He is risen. And he live, and he liveth. I, ca I cannot speak, I cannot speak those words. I will take responsibility for this man, Lucian. He will not betray us. Come with me, sir. I'm sorry I was delayed, Father. I'm glad you've come. No one will know of your presence. At the end of the hallway, go through the small red door and follow the stairs downward. If you wish to speak privately with the Apostle Paul, wait until everyone is gone. From this moment on, we will act as strangers until we meet again at home. I must go now and be with Paul. As Justice descended the long flight of stairs into the cool, moist darkness, he could see many lanterns glowing. Then he heard singing, such singing as he'd never heard in the temples of Rome. Soon he could distinguish the forms of people, scores of people, hundreds of people. As the singing grew more intense, all eyes turned upward as if imploring some unseen God. My brethren, Jesus is alive and his testimony cannot be stopped. My people tried to destroy him on the cross when they nailed him up there, but three days later, Jesus triumphed over sin and over death when he arose from the grave. I know he's alive. I've seen him. 
Persecution may be increasing, but our God shall conquer. And he has conquered, and we shall also conquer. Jesus rose from the dead, and we shall also rise. Fear not, brethren. Rather, let us rejoice evermore, for Jesus Christ is risen, and he liveth forevermore. left the meeting very slowly and cautiously, Justice concealed himself under his cloak in a corner and waited until everyone had gone. Centurion! Oh, I thought everyone had gone. What do you wish, sir? I would like to speak with Paul. Very well. I shall wait above in Paul's quarters. Please take as long as you like. Good evening, Senator Antonio. You know me? You and I are old friends. We did business together about 35 years ago. And who are you? Well, Senator, I'm surprised you've forgotten so quickly. I sold you the finest tents in all the Roman Empire. Saul? Saul of Tarsus? Your memory serves you well. But you hated Jesus. Yes, and I hated his followers, too. In fact, after you left Jerusalem, I began doing all I could to destroy them. But one day I was on my way down to Damascus. 
Jesus himself struck me down with blindness, and a great light came, and he revealed to me that he himself is the Messiah, the Son of God. Now he has forgiven me all of my sin. But why do men need forgiveness? Because every one of us is a sinner who will live somewhere forever. You will either spend eternity in the flames of hell paying for the penalties of your sins yourself, or you'll spend eternity in heaven, forgiven and cleansed only by the blood of Jesus Christ. Then my sin will surely drag me into hell. Justice, no. Jesus can forgive your sin too. You don't know how great my sin is. Well, surely my sins are greater. I have even been responsible for the death of many of his followers. But I killed Jesus. Ah, I'm sorry I bothered you. I'll go now. Wait, wait. Not only do I forgive you, but Jesus will forgive you also. Even when he was suffering on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I know. He spoke those words to me, and they've haunted me ever since. But you don't need to fear any longer. Just pray right now and ask Jesus to forgive you. Ask him to save your soul, and you can become a Christian too. If that decision would just involve me, I would receive Christ right now. But would you ask me to sacrifice the lives of my children? That is a decision that you alone must make. I shall pray that you will. Fire, fire, near us, burning room! Fire, fire, near us, burning room! Run, 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 Rome was burning. Justice had to find Alyssa. He ran up the stairs and out into the smoke-filled street. The sky was red in every direction, and he tried to fight his way back into the heart of the city to find Alyssa. But the panic-stricken throngs of people carried him down the narrow streets toward the river. Slaves were killing and looting. Burning houses were collapsing. Men and women were crying and wailing in despair. Billowing flames were spreading and rolling like waves on an angry sea. Nero was enraptured with the spectacle, and with his golden lute he, in hand, he sang his verses to the hissing flames. After Justice had found refuge on the other side of the river, he discovered that Alyssa had been brought to safety by some of Caesar's guards. However, no one had seen Julius. The next day, Justice, Alyssa, and some of their servants took up residence in one of their large villas outside the city. The fire raged on for seven horrible days and nights. Justice hunted frantically for Julius, but without success. Only after two weeks of searching the ruins did Justice face the tragic reality that his son, like thousands of others, must have perished in the flames. Countless multitudes of homeless, starving Romans plundered the city. Even though Nero distributed great amounts of exquisite foods to all, rebellion and violence were spreading. The raging populace was certain that their emperor had given the command to burn Rome, and Nero had to act quickly. Those ungrateful wretches. I've given them enough bread to bloat them and enough wine to drown them. What more do they want? I know. I shall ride through the multitudes in my golden chariot and sing to them the glorious song I composed as Rome was burning. Surely their hearts will melt and they will realize that Rome did not burn in vain. I fear that common dogs have no ears for heavenly poetry. For once, Petronius is right, noble emperor. The people want revenge. So the people want revenge? Then let us give them a victim. He must surely be someone of great wealth and power. Senator Antonio is such a man. What think ye of that, Senator? I will gladly sacrifice my life for the most excellent Caesar. And I will gladly receive it. But alas, the people will never believe that you burned Rome, and they'll hate me more for sacrificing you. No, we must find a more likely victim. 
By the gods, I've thought of it. Let's not give the people one victim. Let's give them hundreds, yea, thousands. There is a devilish cult of people in the city who consider the gods of Rome to be evil. Neither do they worship thee, most divine Caesar. I have even heard that they predict the world will be destroyed by fire. The people thirst for blood. Let us turn their suspicion on the Christians. O Zeus, O Apollo, why dost thou not deliver us from these cruel wretches who burn the mother of all city? What tortures befit such a crime? The gods will inspire me. I shall give my people such splendid amusement that I will be remembered for all ages to come, and I will drown the memory of the fire in blood. Christians to the lions was the angry cry soon heard throughout all of Rome. Savage beasts were imported from the distant regions of the empire. The prisons were packed with Christians. And then the so-called games began. On the first day, gladiators slew the strongest of the Christians. At the evening games, Christians were placed on crosses, smeared with pitch, then set afire to provide light for the enthusiastic crowds. The gory spectacles continued for weeks, and Nero's deformed imagination devised every possible form of torture and death. Rome was drunk with blood. The bulging prisons were slowly emptied, and finally, the last day of the games arrived. Anticipation filled the air, for everyone knew that Caesar would do his best to provide an unusual climax to, the end, to end the games. Nero sent a special invitation to Alyssa, requesting her to join him for his final glorious spectacle. To refuse was certain death, so she went, accompanied by her father. After the unusual fanfare, the prefect announced that a new contender had challenged Titan, the champion gladiator of Rome. The crowds cheered wildly as Titan entered the arena bearing his favorite weapon, the Roman short sword. His massive, freshly oiled body had been bronzed by the sun, and his huge arms seemed to be chiseled out of stone. His shoulders were broad enough to carry an ox. All eyes turned to the opposite side of the arena to see who the brave new challenger would be. A pale, emaciated Christian slowly emerged and stumbled to the center of the amphitheater, being helped along by two Praetorian guards. Long weeks in a foul prison had taken their toll. The Christian's body had been racked by disease. He was mockingly dressed like a gladiator. The guards forced a sword into the hands of their prisoner, but when they released their hold on him, he staggered and fell into the bloody red sand. The crowd murmured with displeasure. There was obviously no contest. Nero nervously gave the sign for the combat to begin. Titan began to close in on his victim, and suddenly Senator Antonio leaped into the arena and ran toward the helpless Christian. At that moment, the feeble young man raised his eyes and shouted, Father, no! Nero smiled with satisfaction. His plan had worked perfectly. Soon, Alyssa would be his. Justice took the sword from his son's hand, and Titan slowly moved toward his new opponent. As the crowd prepared to watch their beloved senator die, they went into a frenzy. Many were jeering at Nero and others calling for mercy. Justice still had the stance and movements of a trained gladiator, but age had robbed him of his strength and speed. For a short time, it appeared as though there might be a contest, but it soon became obvious that Titan was merely playing with his victim. Suddenly, with brute strength, Titan locked swords with Justice and forced the noble senator to his knees. He raised his sword for the kill, and at that moment... Julius gathered all of his strength and leaped onto the back of Titan in an effort to save his father. 
The gladiator quickly turned, throwing Julius to the ground, and with one stroke opened a large gaping wound across the chest of Julius. Justice seized the opportunity and drove his sword deep into the body of the champion of Rome. Titan fell dead. The excitement of the crowd surpassed anything seen in the arena before. The crowd stamped their feet and howled their approval. Justice hurried to Julius, who was dying, and took his son in his arms. Father, he is risen. Don't try to speak now, son. Save your strength. Father, he is risen. Yes, son, and he liveth forevermore. Lord Jesus, I have sinned greatly, and only thou art great enough to forgive my sin. I now receive thee as my Savior. Noble Senator, I regret that your son is dead, and I also regret that he was a Christian. I also regret that he is dead, Caesar, but I am proud that he was a Christian. Am I to believe that the most learned senator in Rome thinks that there is some significance to the death of a poor, ignorant Jew? He is not dead, Emperor. My own son saw Jesus three days after he was crucified. I've also heard of others who were taken off the cross before they were dead and lived to tell about it. Yes, but Jesus died on his cross. I know because I crucified him. You, the dignified president of the Senate, was the one that crucified this worthless, deluded peasant? I was the centurion under Pontius Pilate who gave the order to nail Jesus to the cross. I ran my spear into his side so there would be no mistake. Then Jesus was dead, yet he is alive, for he is God. What? Have you become one of his followers also? I can do naught else. You're a fool, Justice, and Rome shall witness the reward of a fool. Archers, prepare. Go back, Alyssa. Please, Father, I want to stand at your side. Gracious lady, walk away from your father to safety. There is no charge against you. But I also am a Christian. Certainly you are, out of due respect for your father, I'm sure. Now leave his side. Your loyalty will do him no good, and I do not wish to harm you. He has chosen the course of a fool. I would rather die with a fool than live under a ruler who sets fire to his own empire. Then you shall have your desire. Archers, make ready. They shall both die, and the name of Antonio will be destroyed forever. Yes, Nero, and you also will die one day, and even your name will someday be forgotten. But the name of Jesus Christ will endure forever and ever, because Jesus Christ is risen! Archers, take aim. Kill them. Kill them both. Kill them! Wasn't that good? Let's hear it for now. Most of the preaching has been done. But I would ask you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And for a few minutes, we'll take a look at the scriptures. Really appreciate that. That was excellent. The message was unmistakable and powerful. Father in heaven, help us now in the remaining time to consider these matters from the scripture. We pray, Father, for 
each of us that knows you that we might come away from this place celebrating the resurrection 365 days each year. And Father, for those without Christ, they would realize, Lord, a risen Savior has a pardon for them, a pardon for the asking, a free gift, the free gift of eternal life. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures, and he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. In the first part of this chapter, the apostle Paul defines the gospel. And when you look at what he says, the resurrection is part of the gospel. Now, you can't say that one part of the gospel is more important than another part of the gospel. They are inseparable. They are all critical and he includes the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. For he goes on and then begins what we call in theology apologetics. He gives some proofs. He says in verse 6, After that he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all, he was seen of me also as of one born out of due time. Uh, Chuck Colson, who was convicted as part of the Watergate scandal back in the 70s during the Nixon administration, he became a Christian while he was in prison. And he says of the resurrection, one of the strongest proofs of the resurrection are these eyewitness accounts. 500 at once. You can't delude that many people at one time. But he said, even beyond that, even beyond that, what is so powerful here is the apostles themselves and all the disciples that gave their lives for Christ. He said in the Watergate scandal, there was only a handful that were very loyal to the president that knew about the scandal. But within two weeks, two weeks, one of them turned in state's evidence to save his own neck. Now, he would have probably spent some time in prison. He would have lost his reputation politically. But he wasn't going to lose his life. Folks, these disciples were willing to die for what they knew. A man will not normally die for something that's false. And that's what Watergate proved. With only a handful that turned on their leader. The Lord Jesus Christ leads an army of those that are willing to give their lives for him. Why? Because he's alive. Why? Because the gospel truly set them free. Paul goes on to say, For I am the least of the apostles, that am not meet to be called an apostle, 
because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace was bestowed upon me, was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, not, and yet not I, but the grace of God which was given me. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach, and so ye believe. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen, and if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised up not, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised, and if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, and ye are yet in your sins. And they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, <coughs> we are of all men most miserable. Paul defines the gospel with the resurrection being an important component. Then he gives some apologetics, some proofs of his resurrection. And then he talks about the importance of resurrection. Folks, if Christ isn't resurrected, then we don't resurrect. If Christ isn't resurrected, Paul tells us very clearly, then we're still in our sins. How important is the resurrection? It can't be overstated. You can't say it's strong enough. And then he says this in verse 20. He says, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said it this way. He said the, divi the, the divinity of Christ, the deity of Christ, finds its surest proof in the resurrection. He said the sovereignty of Christ depends on his resurrection for to this end, the Bible says, Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. Because Christ resurrected from the dead, because Christ looked death right in the eye, and because death committed suicide by taking Christ into his realm, it is Christ that determines the end of all things. He is Alpha and he is Omega. He is the beginning and he is the ending. And if you're without him this morning, he wants to save you. He comes as a lamb, sacrificed, shed his blood for your sins. He comes with, the Song of Solomon says, dove's eyes. But if you reject him, as the centurion brought out, there is hell to pay. And you say, why is that? Because a sin committed against an eternal God requires an eternal payment. And without Christ, you don't have that payment. Right now, he looks at you with dove's eyes. Then he will look at you with eyes as a flame of fire, the Bible says. For he is sovereign. He determines the end, not only of the universe and of all things in it, but of your life and mine. And today he wants to be your savior. So that end means heaven and not hell. Spurgeon goes on to say that our justification, 
is linked with Christ's resurrection. The Bible says in Romans 5 verse 1, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What is God asking from you today? Is he asking you to open your wallet? No. Is he, is he asking you to sell your house? No. Is he asking you to quit your job? No. Is he asking you to leave your spouse? No. Is he asking you to suffer for your own sins in pain and agony? No. He's asking you to exercise faith in his finished work on the cross and his death and his resurrection for you. Spurgeon goes on to say that our very regeneration is connected with his resurrection. Jesus encountered Nicodemus, or more to the point, Nicodemus encountered Jesus in John chapter 3, a religious leader, and, and Christ confronted him with the idea that he needed to be born again. He was living, though, a religious man with a dead spirit, though he had a live body. And the saved are born twice and die only once. But the lost are born once and die twice. To put your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ is to be born again. We are born the first time. We have no choice of the matter. The fact that we were born, our names, the place, our parents, everything is determined for us in that first birth. But to be born again, we have to make a choice. And the choice is to understand that we'll not only die physically without Christ, we'll die eternally in what the Bible calls the second death in Revelation chapter 20. And so will you choose this morning to be born again? And be born twice and die only once, rather than being born once and dying twice. And then finally, he goes on to say that our ultimate resurrection rests in Christ's resurrection. For the Bible says in the book of Romans, for if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. This entire chapter written by the apostle Paul is devoted to the idea of the importance of the resurrection, the proofs of the resurrection, the resurrection in the gospel, and in the end, the conclusion of the matter is this. For Paul says in verse 58, therefore my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Paul says that because of the resurrection, and the resurrection alone. If you're a believer here this morning, every single effort in behalf of Christ as a Christian is profitable and prosperous and it is not in vain. Why? Because of the resurrection. That alone and there are so many other reasons in Scripture, but that alone makes it worth it all. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. I'm going to ask the piano players, organ player, to play something by way of invitation. 
And we're just going to examine our own hearts this morning and ask one critical question. Do I know Jesus Christ as my personal Savior? Have I been born again? Have I received him as my Savior? Have I come to God admitting my need? The Bible makes it abundantly clear. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We've all sinned against the thrice holy God. And that's why Jesus came to die on the cross, is to pay for those sins. That's why he was buried, and that's why he rose again from the dead. And if you're here without Christ this morning, I want to give you two choices. You can make a third one. I hope you don't make it. The third one is to reject Christ. But I'm going to give you two choices. Maybe you're still not sure. Maybe you got some questions. Maybe you just want to inquire. If that's the case, would you get up out of your seat even now and just say excuse me to the person next to you and come forward? And we'll have somebody take a Bible, answer your questions, have a word of prayer with you, and get the whole matter settled. We're here to help. That's one choice. Here's another option. Maybe you're convinced. Maybe you realize you need to be saved this morning. You're here in the congregation or you're looking in live stream. Would you the best way you know how tell God right now in prayer while your head is bowed and your eyes are closed right now in prayer, God is listening. In fact, the Bible says Jesus is knocking at the door of your heart and desiring to come in, but he won't unless you open the door of your heart to him. He won't violate your will. Would you say yes to him this morning? Would you say, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I, I know I've violated your law. And I believe Christ died for me, like your word says. And I receive him as my personal savior now from sin. I thank you for the free gift of eternal life in the person of Christ. Will you receive him this morning? He's alive and knocking at the door of your heart and wants to come in and give you eternal life. He'll do it right now if you'll but ask. If you'll but ask. Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you've received Christ as your personal Savior this morning, don't keep it a secret. Tell someone about it. Maybe whoever brought you to church this morning. Maybe your family when you get home. Maybe somebody you work with. Or tell one of us and we'll rejoice with you. But don't keep it a secret. Christian, don't keep it a secret. He's risen. What an inspiring cantata. What an inspiring musical, if you will. But let's go from here today. And until the Lord returns, and who knows when that might be, 
Let's tell others about a risen Savior. Because he is alive. He is alive. And he's still in the soul-saving business. He's just looking for his own people to bring that message, to be the ambassadors that we can and should be. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word this morning. Pray for that one that's still struggling, Lord. That one that isn't sure. Lord, help them to realize, Lord, that salvation is as simple as receiving a free gift. I pray in faith. Nothing more, but nothing less. That it's not religion, it's not good deeds, it's not church membership, it's certainly not self-righteousness, but it's a sacrifice that was made for us. And we pray these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. What number you have? Let's go ahead and stand and take our hymnals and turn to number 387. Number 387 as we sing.
Wasn't that a good presentation? Let, let's, let's hear it one more time for them, okay? Amen. All right. Brother Doty, come on up here and borrow my mic. Right in All right, there, brother. Close us in a word of prayer. Let's do this. Okay, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you and thank you, Father. Oh, Father, for raising sending your son. Uh, we, can't, we can't even express what that would have been like. But Father, think that you did. Thank you for this Sunday. And Father, thank you for that clear presentation about knowing Jesus Christ as our Savior. And Father, for those out there who have seen it, who've been here, are pondering in their hearts what they should do. They just need to say, dear Lord, forgive me, I'm a sinner. And Father, let them say that prayer. And if they have any questions, may they seek that out as all we did. So be with us today, and not only bless this day, but bless this people. And Father, thank you, Father, for we have a risen Savior, and we actually have something to say, that he is risen, he is our Lord and our King, and he's coming back for us. So we ask this in Jesus' precious name, amen.